morning, everyone. My name is Chris, the lead pastor here at Trinity, and I'm so thankful to be with you uh, today in God's house. I was thinking about that song at both our services this morning, the, the one that we sang about being no longer a slave to fear, and that, that refrain that says, you split the sea so that we could walk right through it. It just occurred to me, do you, do you know what the Israelites, what they felt like when the Red Sea opened? They felt like slaves. They didn't feel free. And yet God said, I'm going to open up a way for you to move out into freedom. And I think that one of the things that plagues us today is that we oftentimes feel like we need to feel free before we move into new places. And the Israelites, they felt like slaves. Everything in their experience had told them that bondage was their reality, that slavery to fear or slavery to whatever it was, was who they were. And God said, this is who you think you are. This is how you identify. This is your understanding. And yet I'm wanting to move things around so that I can create a new understanding. I believe that that is the essence of the heart of God for us today, that God wants to move us into new places, but we won't feel free as we start to move. And I found in my own life that there are times where I think if I could just feel free, then I'll move to freedom. If I could just feel like this thing is going to be true, then I would be able to step into it. And I don't think that's the way that it works. So today, if you feel caught, it doesn't mean the Lord's not opening up a way. But you may have to step out feeling just the same before he does something new. And it's not lost on me. That at the end of this wandering, where they left slavery, but they were not yet home, they had to cross through another impossible body of water. At the very end, they didn't cross through a sea, they crossed a river. And again, they had to step out, feeling homeless, before they went home. So today, if you feel unfree, or you feel dislodged or displaced, I believe the Lord in his mercy and in his grace, wants to make us into the kinds of people who take steps. You know, courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage is what you do when you are afraid. And some of us in this room have been stopped. We've been stuck because of what we feel. And the Lord would say, don't let your feelings define you. Let the thing the Lord is doing define you. That sermon is for free. This one's also for free. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 16. We're going to read the actual, the hardest uh, parable, the most difficult parable of Jesus today. Uh, this is one of those moments where I'm both thankful and frustrated that I'm an Anglican because isn't in the Anglican church, the Bible comes to us rather than us uh, picking and choosing the Bible like we would food at a Denny's buffet. And when I woke up uh, early in the week and started looking at this sermon, I thought, Really? I've, I've actually read commentaries where commentary writers have been like, we don't really know what this means. <laughs> At least parts of it. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man. So Jesus is telling the story. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their home. So 
Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. And then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his manager commended the dishonest, his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves. Jesus is saying this. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. So that when it's gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If you then, who have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask you to help us. This is one of those moments where um, we're entering into a place of uh, mystery and, frankly, tension. And so, Lord, I pray that as we sit with these words, we would think about you, God, and we would also think about us. Help us to see our lives in light of this and to receive whatever the invitation might be for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's some questions to consider before we dive in. Is the master good or bad? Is the manager a good guy or a bad guy? I would say to you, the flow of this story is that the master, the rich man, um, is, is good. This is a story Jesus is telling about God and about people. And... The manager is neither good nor bad. He's us. He's a mixed bag. He does some bad stuff and then he tries to do some good stuff. And then he's commended in ways that frankly are confusing. And so what we're going to do is two things today. We're going to walk through the story, a story that Jesus tells. And we're going to try to understand the story. And then we're going to walk through the last paragraph of the passage where Jesus offers a very brief teaching that is connected to the parable and yet adds to the parable. So the parable, and then what is Jesus saying? And we're going to try to hear. The first movement in the parable is that a rich man calls his manager into account for squandering the rich man's resources. The first thing that you have to understand is that the manager didn't own the stuff. God is telling us a story here about the stuff, about our resources, about the gifts that we have and the money that we have and the time that we have and the energy that we have and the personalities that we have and the schools that we go to and the privilege that we experience. And he's trying to get us to see in a story form that those things in your life don't belong to you any more than the manager's resources. They didn't belong to him. They belong to his master's boss. And the story that Jesus is telling 
reminds people like us to remember whose is what. And to also remember that everyone will be called to provide an account for what they do with the things that have been entrusted to them. The manager, somewhere along the way, forgot that he had a job to do. And the word squander is such an interesting word because it might mean that he was just lazy, right? Like he was sleeping until lunchtime and he was like, I got a great job, driving a nice car, nobody's checking in on me, I can just kind of be lazy. Or it might mean that he was playing fast and loose with somebody else's stuff. Squander seems to imply that latter one, I think. Someone is being a little bit cavalier. You know what I mean? It's like you start to think that the stuff is your stuff. And that's what we tend to do. You know, it's like someone entrusts you with something and then you start to think, well, I mean, I think I identify with this, this place that I'm occupying. And what Jesus is doing in this story is he's saying, we will ultimately have to answer for how we steward the stuff, the gifts, the talents, the resources, the money, the time that we have. Because there is someone that we answer to, someone we belong to. And there's a right way to do it. And there's a wrong way to do it. The second movement in this passage, after the guy calls him to account and says, you're fired, is the disgraced manager takes matters into his own hands. And this is where the story gets weird, especially for those of you that are way into systematic theology. Because we think, oh, it's grace. I'm into grace. I'm not into works. And here we see Jesus telling a story about a sketchy dude who starts to cut deals. He's in trouble. How much do you owe? 150 right now. Did your boss give you authority to cut this deal? Oh yeah, we're good. How much do you owe? 180. He probably looked at this guy and saw his shoes and said, oh, he's got better ability to pay. Like we're going to make him pay a little bit more. The guy's like, do you have authority to do? Oh yeah, we're good. He starts to cut deals. He starts to negotiate on behalf of someone who said like, I'm done with you, man. You're a sketchy, lazy, reckless guy. And then he seems to act reckless in an effort to try to repair his own reputation. There's not an indication in this story that this dude is now acting on behalf of his boss. Like he says, I'm, I'm, I'm a wimp. I can't dig. I'm too proud to beg. This is all about him. Everything that he does when he cuts these deals, he's doing these things out of a place of self-preservation. He's just like, I got to have a reputation. This guy's going to kick me out of his house. I got to be invited into somebody else's house. He's looking for a new job. He's basically making the best of a really terrible situation that he created. And this is where we think, well, Jesus is going to like, you know, tell this story and put the smack down on this guy. And then the third movement happens. And a a crisis got him moving. And and I'm just going to tell you, I know that you all are very motivated apart from crisis. I know that you just do. This poor soul, it took a crisis for him to start working on his life. He he has a classic jailhouse conversion. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And for him, it wasn't just like, Somebody's going to say something bad about him on social media. We're talking about a guy that can end up in jail or worse. I mean, this was bad for this dude. And a crisis comes to bloom in his life. And he begins to think, 
I have made a mess of things. And if I'm going to hold on to my head, I better do something about it. And you know this, we live long enough, we know that sometimes a crisis has to come for us to begin to work on that marriage, to work on that job, to work on our character, to work on our relationship with our child, to work on our health. We need these crises sometimes, just like this shady, sketchy dude. Jesus is telling us a story that is meant to kind of be a mirror in the face. So he starts to hustle. He's motivated. He's motivated in probably a selfish way, primarily, but motivated nonetheless. And we expect God to say, this is not about your motivation. And yet Jesus tells a story where the third movement is this. The master commends the manager for making the most of a terrible situation. Jesus tells his story. He uses the word shrewd. Would you like that said about you and your field? Well, he was a a shrewd fella. A little shady. Got himself into some messes. This guy made a series of bold decisions. This guy did not lay down in the mess he had made, but said, I'm going to make the most of the mess that I made. And his motivation was separate from like the facts. And the manager, the boss, now looks at the manager and he says, in some strange way, you have made my reputation among the villagers better because people had left these deals that the guy cut and they were saying, oh, I mean, the guy's a great guy. And the master looks at the sketchy dude and he says, I commend you for not laying down in it. Is he validating who this guy is? Nope, because Jesus is about to give us a little teaching about what he means. But he's actually saying, you work through a thing without quitting. So I've sat with so many people who've been in places of disruption in their life. I mean, it's just part of my job. And um, I've heard men look at me and say, uh, I want to save my marriage. I'm going to work on Uh, my life and I'm going to work on my marriage. And then I've seen some of those men become better men and their marriage gets, gets healed. And I've seen some of those men become better men and their marriage doesn't get healed, but they become a better, more faithful person. And then I've seen some who were just working for an outcome. And then when it didn't happen, they just said, well, now I'm just going to drink myself to death. Now I'm going to indulge in whatever it is that I want to indulge in. They were working for a situation. And then when the situation didn't pan out, they just checked out. I believe that we're at a moment culturally where we are more prone to checking out because we have so many options that help us check out. We drink too much. We eat too much. We abuse substances of other kinds. We're addicted to sex and entertainment and status and image management. All these things. And so Jesus tells us a story that says this dude didn't lay down and there was something commendable about that. It didn't validate who he was, but it was commendable. And then he uses words like dishonest gain and children of this age and children of light. Words that confuse us. Why would Jesus commend a bad guy? The irony is in the ancient world that 
no one listening to Jesus would have expected anything else. They would have thought, how could you throw a guy like him who was trying to hustle out of a mess he had made? How could you throw him under the bus? Ancient people, and even today in Semitic cultures, would say, well, he made the most of a terrible situation. It wasn't the best, but it certainly was better than the opposite. And I'm just going to tell you, I do not understand what Jesus means when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. I have a doctorate. I have no idea what that means. And I would just tell you, anybody who says, oh, I know what that means, they are probably pulling something out of someplace and doing their best. I've read commentarians who just said, I don't know what that means. But I do know what this means. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. I do know what this means. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. I know what those words mean. And so we're going to clear this deck and we're going to look at Jesus's teaching that's connected to the parable but not identical. The first thing that he wants us to see is who you are when the stakes are low is who you will be when the stakes are high. Jesus makes that direct statement. He says it's the character of who you are. This guy was shady before and then he brought some of his shadiness into his business dealings after. Jesus was not commending his character. He was saying he was doing some things that were probably better than other things. But there's a clear invitation after Jesus tells this story and then makes that statement about faithful with a little, faithful with a lot, unfaithful with a little, unfaithful with a lot. He's saying while your behavior in a bad situation might be commendable, like you're a hustler, I want you to be a faithful person, a different kind of person. Do you know that there are behaviors in you that could be commended and yet your character might be really malformed? It's not one or the other. If you do something good, it doesn't make you good in the eyes of God or anybody else. I mean, some of us in our relationships, we do 90 things bad and then one thing good. And then we want the people nearest to us to celebrate us. You know, my middle child has a habit of sarcastically handing out gold stars in our house. She keeps them in her phone case. And if somebody does something where they're fishing for a compliment, which is usually me, she goes, dad, you get a gold star today. We live our lives wanting gold stars. Jesus is not handing out gold stars. He's saying who you are matters more than what you do, but what you do does matter for something. Like if you've ruined your marriage and you decide to be the best dad or mom that you can to your children in a broken scenario, you're doing something right after doing something wrong. And both of those things can be true at the same time. We're made of mixed materials. And Jesus wants you ultimately to be a good steward. That's what he's saying here. The second movement in what Jesus teaches is this. In this instance, faithfulness means making the most of the hand you're currently holding. 
And I want you to hear me now. Jesus is not validating, and I certainly am not validating being shady. But here's what Jesus, I think, would say. One of the things that I love about this impossibly difficult parable is that it doesn't let anyone off the hook. In the story Jesus tells, this dude should have done his job from the beginning. He was a manager. He should have taken that job seriously. In your life, you should do your job from the beginning. If God has given you talents and money and abilities and opportunities, he wants you to steward those things without squandering them. So if you're young and you haven't made a mess of your life, God wants you to steward your life from the very beginning as if the treasure of your life isn't actually yours, but it's his. So if you've not neglected your spouse, by the grace of God, don't start. If you have not cut corners at work and with your children and with your friends, then by the grace of God, don't begin to make this story about you. Because I just want to tell you, it isn't about you. The older that we get, the more we're invited to recognize that life is not about us. And what Jesus would say is, if you have things intact in your life, hold on to those things and be the steward that God has called you to be. But if you have made a mess of things, Find the way forward there too. This is where Jesus uses a shady dude to tell us it's not over. Your marriage might be over, but your ability to be a better parent to your adult children, that isn't over. Your friendship might be over, but your ability to, under the grace of God, cultivate your capacity to be a better friend in the future, that might not be finished. If you are taking in air today, your story is not finished being told. And Jesus is telling a story to say wherever it is that you find yourself, don't make excuses, don't feel sorry for yourself, don't lay down in it and indulge in unhealthy patterns of thinking. Get up and say, God, what's the way forward for me? The Jews always believed in a way forward. Long and windy paths, but a way forward nonetheless. And one of the things Jesus is trying to get us to see is that wherever it is that we find ourselves, find out what faithfulness looks like there. You may not be able to fix what's happened. Sometimes there's irreparable harm that we do to one another. But we can move forward. So I think the third movement and what Jesus is inviting us to consider is to ask this in this story, where am I? Where am I here? If you've made a mess of things, don't. If you, uh, if you haven't made a mess of things, don't. If you have made a mess of things, don't quit. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't get up or give up. Rather, get up and move forward. And I will say to you today, there is a way forward for you, even if that way forward is somewhat impaired. You may not be able to run, but you can walk. You may not be able to walk, but you can limp. You may not be able to limp, but you can crawl. We can always move forward. And Jesus is telling us a story that tells us wherever you find yourself in, discern what the way forward looks like under the grace of God. When I hear Jesus tell stories in the Bible, he often employs what I would call a how much more theme. So if God is the man, the master in this story and we're the managers for good or bad, uh, if you think about other stories, right, they tell a story about a lazy man who uh, doesn't want to get out of bed at night and someone's knocking on the door and he gets out of bed even though he doesn't want to and he does the right thing. And then he says, how much more will God answer your prayer? 
We're also told if a bad dad or mom will give a kid fish instead of a scorpion, how much more will God not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I would say in a story like this, if we are doing our best to move forward with God and life and not laying down into self-pity, but moving forward, even if we've compromised our standing, how much more will God not look at us and say, I will heal the heart and the hurt and I will move people and I will move mountains so that you can become the kind of woman that God's called you to be. Your story's not finished being told. But here's where we're going to end it. The most important thing, Jesus would say to you and me, do not squander or serve. This is where he adds something. Do not squander or serve the resources that have been entrusted to you. They're not yours. They're God's. And what we see in the story is implied. First he squanders, and then because of his self-preservation, he begins to serve comfort in his life. And the story doesn't tell it explicitly, but the guy goes from being a layabout or a reckless person to being someone who now is doing whatever he has to do to preserve his own security. And Jesus ends by telling us this, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and security. And when we hold on with closed fist to our money, our resources, our security, our reputation, after having been reckless with those things, we won't be open to receive the gift of God. I believe the invitation for Jesus is for you and me to learn how to open up our hands and trust him with things that ultimately aren't ours anyway. Has anybody seen the Downton Abbey movie? I loved it. I will admit I was very stressed. I went into the movie. I was not stressed when I came out of the movie. It's like a two-hour escape into a pretend world. But one of the things that I love about the Downton Abbey movie is that the people downstairs may fight for their territory, but ultimately, they know that silverware doesn't belong to them. That silverware belongs to the people upstairs. And when I live my life as if I own the silverware, well, I'm smart. Well, I can win an argument. I come from privilege. So that's mine. When I start to act like I own those things, my fists close. And then I'll protect those things. And I'll defend those things. And I'll see something that makes me defensive and I'll be defensive. But if I remember that I don't own those things, I loosen my grip and I open my hands. Are you living like this? You live in like this. You know how I live? Like this. For those of you on the internet, I'm opening and closing my hands. <laughs> the Lord wants you to be aware of where your treasure is. Over the last weeks at this church, we've been talking about the treasure of the church. And I want to say to you, the treasure of your life belongs to God, not to you. So you can trust him enough to open up your hands. Will you do it? And when you don't do it, will you repent? And if you want to know how you steward your treasure, just look at the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, who you hang out with. Follow your calendar and your cash, and you will know where your treasure is. The Bible tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And y'all, it doesn't belong. My time doesn't belong to me. 
And I know what slavery looks like for me. When I start thinking like a slave again, it's when I put walls up and I protect myself. And I say, I don't have enough. So if I give you some of my not enough, then we, we're both going down. But when I begin to open up my hands, I'm all of a sudden less scarce and afraid about how to spend myself. You need to know what that looks like for you. Because Jesus would say, it ain't yours. So don't act like it's yours. And at the end of the day, that's really freeing if we could actually believe it. So if you're able, let's stand together. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ's likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.